The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. The way man views God is of utmost importance. It directly affects how we're going to lead our lives. If we view God in a way that is inconsistent with who God actually is, and the characters he possesses, and and all of those other things concerning his nature, then it's going to have a negative effect on our lives. And since God is eternal, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, is what we read in Psalm 90 and verse 2, then knowledge of him is unattainable unless he reveals himself to us. We see that he reveals himself in creation, his eternal attributes are made or, or are, are seen, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, his eternal power and Godhead in Romans 1 and verse 20. And then his word is revealed to us. So we know that God exists and we can understand some parts of his nature with the manifestation of himself in creation. And then we can know him to a greater degree, the things that he desires and delights in and and specifics concerning his doctrine, how he would want to be worshipped, and, and what is something that is moral or inherently immoral is something he reveals to us through his word. The interesting thing about that is idolatry is shown to be fraudulent because of the fact that the gods that are the object of the idolaters' worship, they bear the same qualities as they're worshipers. And so we don't know God unless he reveals himself to us in specific ways. Well, the idolaters know their gods in the greatest of intimacy because their gods came forth from them. It's fairly well understood with regard to idolatry, especially those of the pagan gods, the Greek gods that we know of and are familiar with, that they're recorded to exhibit characteristics of a man, negative things like jealousy and hatred um, and pettiness and uncontrolled wrath and all other kinds of flaws. And what that really kind of does for us is it shows us that idolatry is fraudulent. They're not really gods because only can a true God be exhibited in the way that we know God to be not from our own understanding and our own imaginations, but because that's who he is and he reveals it to us. No one could have come up and made up the God that actually is. The only reason that we understand him in the way we understand him and we know him as he is, is because he revealed that to us. It's quite obvious that it's impossible for us to come up with something like that because the pagans tried to do it and their gods had many flaws. And that's why the Apostle Paul in Acts 17, when he got to Mars Hill, told them, you have this altar inscribed to the unknown God, and therefore the one you worship without knowing him I proclaim to you. This one and only true God is not like these other gods you worship. He's not imperfect. He doesn't have the same kind of qualities really and imperfections like you do, but, but he transcends anything that you could ever think of. And when you think about that, the way we view him is either going to, in a skewed view, lower ourselves in regard to how we act or elevate ourselves. We're either going to lead a life that is transcendent in its spiritual qualities or that's going to stoop down to 
the errant qualities of sinful man. And we need to understand that. We need to view God through the lens that he gives us in his word. There's a lot of people who believe in the one and only true God, the God of the Bible, but they ignore his word to such a degree that really the God they believe in is not the God of the Bible. They claim to believe in Jehovah. They claim to believe in Jesus Christ, his son. But what they believe about them is in contradiction to what the scripture reveals about him. And because of that, they lead a life that is contradictory to the revelation of God's will. They're not as strong spiritually as they think they are because of the errant view of God they hold. And so we as Christians need to study about the nature of God and his attributes because the more and more we come to know God in intimate fashions, the more we'll become like him. And it's going to to affect the decisions we make and the actions that we take. There are so many characteristics and qualities of God and his nature that we could discuss. The list is is so long. We could have one sermon for each particular characteristic of God and it would be a rich and, and wonderful study. But I want us to consider three general characteristics of God and his nature, three attributes of God we might describe as the omni-attributes of God. That word omni is from a Latin root, omnis, and it means all. So all or of all things. And there's three matters that they're not words that are seen in Scripture, but they're descriptions of who God is, where he is all of something. He, he is either all-powerful, omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing, or omnipresent, everywhere, all-present. And those three understandings of God are obviously going to directly affect how we live. If we truly understand that he's omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, Our lives are going to reflect those points. Consider, if you will, that God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He has unlimited power. He's able to do anything. Consider that in reference to God's discussion with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, where he illustrates and emphasizes the fact that he is indeed omnipotent so that Abraham would understand the things that he's saying to him And that would cause him to live in a certain way. In Genesis 17 and verse 1, it says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. Almighty there is one of the names of God, actually. It's El Shaddai or Shaddai. And it means, as Jesenius' Hebrew Chaldee lexicon defines, most powerful. And so when, when we see that word Almighty, It's often actually not just the description of God, but a title he bears, a name that he bears. El, like we know the word in the beginning, God, in Genesis 1-1 is Elohim. When we see that word El, that prefix El before something else, it's referencing God. So El Shaddai or Shadi is the most powerful. He is omnipotent God. I want us to understand that he calls himself that in Genesis 17.1. I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. He's calling out his omnipotence before Abram so that he walks before him in obedience, but also it grants him confidence in what God's about to say. In verse 2, he says, I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Abraham fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. 
No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I will give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Consider what God is saying, especially with regard to how this nation would come and then therefore inhabit that land he promised. Abraham, as is noted in verse 1, is 99 years old at this time. And God is revisiting this promise that he promised way back in chapter 12 that he would have a son and through that son would come all nations that he would be blessed by. And he's waited all of this time. And I think that it's obviously to show his power, but also to, to grant Abraham the ability to, to prove his faith before God as we see throughout his life. His belief is accounted to him in order to or for righteousness. He says, Abraham, I know you're 99 years old, but I'm El Shaddai or El Shaddi. I'm Almighty God. I am the most powerful, unlimited power. And so when I say at 99 years old, you're going to have a son. I mean it. I can do it. And Abraham reacted in this way in verse 17. He fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 99 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. That wasn't God's plan. It wasn't going to be through something Abraham did, by like taking Hagar and having Ishmael. But it would be through God's promise. So God reacted and said, No, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac, I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. Consider Sarah's response when she heard of this in Genesis 18 and verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham after Sarah had laughed about it, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Notice what God said. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life. And Sarah shall have a son. He says, I'm almighty. And that's to give you this confidence in this promise. How in the world are we going to have a child at this old age? Because nothing is too hard for the Lord. Job reached this conclusion at the end of his life or at the end of his, his trials that he experienced and his discussion with God when God put him in his place. And he said, I know that you can do everything that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. Nothing's beyond the limits of God's power. And this power is exhibited in his creation in the greatest way. From the beginning, we can see the omnipotence of God and therefore trust him because he created. Hebrews 3 and verse 4 says, Every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. Genesis 1.1 shows that in a very profound way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we often visit this verse and, and consider it in light of evidences of God's existence and the understanding that everything had to come from something except God didn't come from anything. In the beginning, God, he was before all things. But the interesting thing about it is him being before all things, there was nothing to create anything with. Someone who creates something has to take a material that they themselves 
have not created. And so there's no true creation when it comes down to it. The only true creator in its most intimate and, and, and essential way is God. Because he spoke from nothing into existence all that we see. Who could have done that except him? His eternal power and Godhead are understood. They're without excuse because of the creation. Those invisible attributes are clearly seen. Romans 1 and verse 20. Someone who's honest looks into creation and sees all that there is and understands that the only way that can exist is if there's one who is eternal in nature and therefore has eternal power that possessed only by deity. And so God's omnipotence is revealed. Psalm 19 and verse 1 says it in this way, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Jeremiah 32 and verse 27 echoes a lot Something a lot similar to what God said to to Abraham concerning Sarah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? The answer is a resounding no. There's nothing too hard for the Lord. He is one who has no limits as it pertains to his power. And we should never be surprised by something the Lord has done. No matter how small it may seem or great and significant it may seem. And this is what took Paul back when he was confronting people like the Pharisees who denied that Jesus had raised from the dead. Here are the Pharisees, and they stand in stark contrast to the Sadducees who believe there is no resurrection. The Pharisees do believe in a resurrection. And they not only believe in the resurrection, they hang their hope on the resurrection. They look forward to the resurrection. It's something they understand is a scriptural precept and concept. And so when Paul preaches that Jesus has been risen from the dead, they reject that saying there's no way that could have happened. This man, Jesus, couldn't have overcome death. And they're rejecting the very thing that they claim to believe in. That's the argument that Paul makes before Agrippa. He says, my manner of life from my youth in Acts 26, 4, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know they knew me from the first if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. They are the ones that believe in the very thing they are condemning Paul for preaching. And now I stand, he explains, and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I'm accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Paul's saying it should not be something that's hard for us to understand and believe that God can raise the dead. And in fact, the Pharisees do believe that, yet they cannot comprehend that God would raise the Messiah from the dead. And it's largely because they could not comprehend that God would ever have the Messiah put to death. They didn't believe that about the Messiah. They simply didn't want the truth. Nothing is too incredible for God. And because of that, that's why the Apostle Paul reacted to Festus, calling him mad. I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. It's truth and it's reasonable to believe this truth that God raised his son from the dead. Why? Because nothing is too hard for him. He is omnipotent. Now, this characteristic, along with all the other characteristics and attributes of God, is going to, if we comprehend it and if we believe it, and keep it at the forefront of our minds, drastically change how we live our lives. If we believe that God is 
the omnipotent, all-powerful God, it's going to cause us to live in a certain way. I think we see one of those ways in Genesis 17 and verse 1. He tells Abraham, I am almighty God. And the first thing he says after that, before he speaks of the promises, he says this, walk before me and be blameless. If I'm all powerful, if there's no limit to my ability, then you need to fear me and be blameless before me. There are obvious consequences enumerated by God in the Old Testament and the New Testament to disobedience. And if he's all powerful and he says this is a consequence to disobedience, then we know that consequence will absolutely happen if we disobey him. And we should fear that. He wants us to fear that. Consider in Matthew 10 in the limited commission when he called these disciples to go and, and preach the gospel to people of the Jewish household that would reject them and treat them severely. He tells them, by command, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the rooftops. He's saying, don't withhold any truth that I give to you from the house of Israel. But then he says in verse 28, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. He's saying, don't fear the ones who are limited in their power. They do have some power. They can cause your heart to stop beating. But that's not enough power to fear. The power to fear is the one who can actually destroy you in hell. Luke 17, I say Luke 17 on the board, I meant Luke 14. So excuse that typo. Luke 14 and verse 31, when Jesus is speaking of true discipleship, that you leave all and follow Christ, this is one thing he talks about in discipleship in addition to counting the cost. In verse 31, he speaks of counting the cost of actually being disobedient to the king. He says, what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. In other words, here's this king coming and I've got to make a decision. I know that my army pales in comparison to his army. The numbers are against me. There's no way that I can win this battle or win this war. And so instead of just going for it, I'm going to sit down and think about, are there any other options? Because if I confront this king who is dead set on running through anybody in his path, then I'm not going to win. Count that cost. Verse 32. Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. You don't have to fight him. You can surrender. You can ask, what are your conditions of peace? And that's exactly what we're doing when we obey the gospel. We can either go up against God and think that we'll stand a fighting chance at the judgment, when in reality all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and if we don't submit to Him, we're going to utterly fail. Or we can send for conditions of peace. God, what do I do? How do I be at peace with you? I don't want to be on this wrong side of history. I want to be on the right side of history, your side, because we know that you're all-powerful. The omnipotence of God should lead us to fearful obedience. But in addition to the fearful obedience, we don't have to fear if we're obedient. We fear, so we obey. But if we are obeying, we really have nothing to fear. We fear disobeying so that we don't fall into his wrath. But once we obey because we know what he's capable of doing to our soul out of disobedience, we have no reason to fear because we're on his side. So Jesus follows that concept of the fear of God in Matthew 10. Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And he follows it with words of comfort. 
He says, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You're of more value than many sparrows. This is one of those situations where it seems that Jesus is contradicting himself. He says, fear, but don't fear. Verse 31, you fear God, not fearing man. But as you fear God, you have nothing whatsoever to fear because you are on the right side. You are on God's side. And so you don't even have to fear punishment, even from God, if you're obeying him. If we just submit to him, then we are on the right side of his power. In Psalm 118 and verse 6, the psalmist says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And the Lord is only on our side as we are on the Lord's side. And thirdly, this omnipotence should incite unwavering trust in us toward God. That's what faith is. It's not just belief in a fact, but it's, it's trust in the object of our faith in an unwavering manner. In Genesis 17, God said, I'm almighty God. You should trust in my promises, therefore, essentially. And in Romans 4, we see that's exactly the kind of faith Abraham had, who contrary to hope, Romans 4.18, in hope believed so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Everything seemed to be against that promise and against the fulfillment of it in Abraham's life. Contrary to hope and hope believed. And not being weak in faith, verse 19, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And why did he do that? Because he understood the omnipotence of God. Look at verse 21. And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Essentially, Abraham looks at this impossible situation and says, well, I know that if God said it, it's not impossible for him. And I may not fully comprehend how this is going to this going to go down. This is going to happen. This is going to to show in fulfillment. But I believe I fully trust. And this kind of trust is manifested in all of our areas of life where we surrender ourselves to his will. We understand that nothing he commands us to do or refrain from is too much. It's not too tall of an order. And it's because we know he's omnipotent. Consider Philippians 2 and verse 12. Therefore, Paul says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. We work out our salvation, understanding that it is a part of our responsibility, but knowing that God's working in us through his word. And if he's all powerful, then we know we can do what he commands us to do through his word. We've got to understand the omnipotence of God. We've also got to understand the omniscience of God. Omniscient means all knowing or knowing everything. The Latin root of it is seer, to know, and that's where we get the root of science. It's knowledge. And so God is all knowledge. There's nothing he doesn't know. He knows everything. And this obviously will change how we live before him if we do understand it. Elihu, Job's friend, ascribed to God perfect knowledge. He said in Job 34 and verse 14, listen to this, O Job. 
And regardless of his motives and his thoughts about why these bad things are happening to Job, he spoke the truth in this regard. He said in Job 37, 14, listen to this, O Job, stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know when God dispatches them and causes the light of his cloud to shine? Verse 16, do you know how the clouds are balanced? Those wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge and God himself considers this attribute of him in the 38th chapter of Job. When he starts to question Job, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said in verse two, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? In other words, you don't even know what this is all about. You don't know what you're talking about. Who is this without knowledge who darkens counsel? Prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Do you know how that happened? What it looked like? How I did it? Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Job, you know nothing compared to God is what he's trying to emphasize. He is perfect or complete in knowledge. We think about knowledge. We'll never know everything. No matter what the subject is. Even the scientist in a particular field that is at the top of that field doesn't know everything. There always will be things that people are discovering. That's certainly true in regard to our knowledge of God. As much as we study scripture, we'll never know it all. We'll always be finding these things about God and we'll always come to a more intimate knowledge of him. But God's knowledge is perfect, which means he is not ever going to learn anything. He already knows it. He is all knowing. Psalm 147 verse 5 says, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. He knows the things that we don't know. Consider how his revelation works. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. In other words, there are some things that we will never know until this life is over and we join God in heaven for eternity. But the things that are impossible for us to know anything about, God knows. He could write all the books in the world on it, multiply that by a trillion and even more so. He knows everything. He knows it intimately. Consider the impressive texts of Isaiah 41 when God is challenging these idols. He's showing that they're nothing and he's the only true God. And he does this Many times in scripture by showing he knows the past, he knows the present, and he knows the future. Who could do that? Who could do it perfectly? And not just claim to do it, but demonstrate it perfectly. In Isaiah 41 and verse 21, it says, Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were that we may consider them and know the latter end of them and or declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's. Yes, do good or do evil that we may just be dismayed and see it together. Indeed, you are nothing and your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. He's challenging idols and idolaters to predict the future. But at the same time in predicting the future, give an accurate and detailed, flawless description of the past and present. You think of that. Some people claim that Isaiah could not have written when many of the scholars agree he wrote, he wrote 
because of how flawless his prophecies came about. So really, he was in the present time of what was actually happening that was so-called prophesying. And he wrote it as it happened in history. He, he was, as a historian, looks back on something that already happens or looks at it as it's happening, and, and he wrote it down. He couldn't have predicted it, and so that's their reasoning. But what God says is you've got to be able to not only predict the future, but also give a detailed representation and account of the past. And so if Isaiah was, quote unquote, prophesying about a future, but really he was faking it, he was actually during what was being prophesied. He was there. He wasn't before it and predicting it hundreds of years in the past that it would happen in the future, but he was right there then and there. Then he couldn't have known all of the present day things to that detail that he wrote about in Isaiah. You see, Isaiah is not just a book of future telling. Neither are any of the other prophecies. But what God has done in his his design of prophetic utterances is he not only has shown himself to be God by predicting things that would happen hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years in the future, like all of the prophecies of the Christ that came about in its exact detail, nothing left out, nothing missing. But he also showed that this person really did live in this time because only could a person who lived in that time and was in the position that he was in could have given that detailed of an account. And so think of it in regard to this. If, if we were to set out with regard to, to giving the history of something that happened in the 1800s of our, of our country, and we just had to go off of what we know off the top of our heads, what we've studied in a history book, but you can't consult those facts and copy down those facts and just reverse them in some other way. We wouldn't get anywhere close to the detail as one who recorded it as it happened during that time. And so what that does for us is it shows that God, through Isaiah, has shown he knows what will happen in the future. And Isaiah actually wrote it down during that specific time because he got all of these details right. And he's challenging these idols. You can't do it. You can't do it. He does it again in Isaiah 46 and verses 8 through 11. Remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Only God can do that. Only God knows the future like he does the present and the past. The apostles understood this when they sought to find a replacement for Judas. They understood that God knows all to even the intimate degree of knowing each and every individual man better than they know themselves. Acts 1 and verse 24, they said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which of these two you have chosen. You know the hearts of all. That's how he chose David, because he knew David's heart. And he also knew his brother's hearts. And he chose David because he was a man after God's own heart. Also, with regard to God's infinite wisdom and his infinite knowledge, is the fact that his wisdom is greater than that of man's. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18 through 25, we see that demonstrated in a wonderful way because it stands to represent the fact that men were seeking spiritual truth and men were speak, seeking spiritual fulfillment. Men were essentially, especially the Jews, seeking salvation 
and they couldn't find it within their own knowledge. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God for it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Jews request a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block into the Greeks' foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He's speaking of God's wisdom as foolishness, not in the perspective of of even God's foolishness is wiser than man's wisdom, but he's speaking of it in the perspective of the man. That's foolish. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's foolishness to the Greeks. But what they think is foolish is actually the power of God to salvation. You bring up any wise, any debater, anyone with this professed wisdom in this world is what God is challenging and he's demonstrating. And they couldn't tell you how this plan of salvation would work. And God designed it that way so that no one could have reason to brag, but we all fall down humbly before God, knowing nothing so that he can guide us into everlasting truth. He demonstrates it again in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 7, saying, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, and he calls it the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. God's wisdom surpasses the wisdom of man. And so since God is omniscient, we're going to be before the omniscient God in a certain way. And just like with his omnipotence, his omniscience is going to lead to, to careful obedience. Not, not just this obedience in a spirit that is hypocritical, unfeigned faith, unfeigned obedience. Notice in 1 John 3 and verse 20, what John says concerning the omniscience of God, essentially. If our heart condemns us, he says, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. In other words, you only know whether you are doing right, ultimately, and you only know whether you are sincere before God in service to him. Are you here out of sincerity? I don't know. The person next to you doesn't know, but God does. And so we can fool each other all day long that we're doing right. But behind closed doors or in the secret reservations of our heart, we're hypocritical in some way. But God knows whether we're hypocritical or sincere is what John is saying. So instead of just acting like you're obeying, actually carefully obey. Make sure you are right with God because he knows one way or the other. Psalm 139 in the first four verses speaks of the omniscience of God. And it says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue. But behold, O Lord, you know it all together. He knows everything we've done and everything we've said and all the thoughts of our heart and judge us based on those things. The Hebrew writer gives the example of the disobedience of the Israelites so that they won't enter into that disobedience. And he gives the reason in verse 12 of Hebrews 4, 
For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We are completely bare before God. He knows everything. We can't hide anything from him. He knows it. And so we should be careful that we're always obedient to him. Just like with the omnipotence, there's comfort that comes with the omniscience of God. Think of that. We don't know everything, and that's the cause for a lot of trouble. But if God knows everything, then we have a place to go where there's information that will never lead us astray. It is foolproof. It will absolutely be correct in the best way. Consider Isaiah 40 and verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fail. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And the way you wait on the Lord and receive that kind of strength through his understanding is by being faithfully obedient to his will. In other words, God is not ignorant of our troubles and our struggles. He knows it. And the best way to live is to live by his instruction because his instruction applies to our struggles. And those who wait on the Lord shall definitely renew their strength. What this should do is it should incite great faith in his wisdom. That's what the gospel is. It's the power of God to salvation. And and what it does is it reveals the righteousness of God from faith to faith. And so here's this object of faith, the gospel, inciting faith in the reader of it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And the people who read the gospel and they believe it don't just act as if they believe the fact and don't do anything else. But the belief is a trust. And that trust is manifest in, in doing whatever the gospel says. It's a trust which is manifested in this way of understanding Isaiah 55, verse 8. When God said, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so the faith which the gospel says saves is the faith which trusts that I know this is the way I should go. So I'll do it. Not nitpicking and saying, well, I believe this about the truth, but I think this is outdated. I think Paul was wrong here. This was a matter of culture. This was a matter of true godly wisdom. It's taking it all as it is and doing it. James 1 speaks about this with regard to the man that needs to be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Don't get angry about what God is telling us to do, but humbly receive it with meekness, the implanted word which is able to save your souls and be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. I think it's all summed up in the proverb, Proverbs 3 and verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. The omniscience of God is at our disposal. We don't know all things, but we have the source that is greater than Google or Wikipedia. We have the creator of the universe who does truly know all things and knows the best way. And thirdly and lastly, God is omnipresent, which means he's everywhere. He's present everywhere, and at the same time, he's present everywhere. The psalmist noted this truth in Psalm 139 and verse 7. 
Where can I go from your spirit and where can I flee from your presence? He says, if I ascend into the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Jeremiah utters similar words in Jeremiah 23, beginning in verse 23 and going through verse 24. But understand this is omnipresence through an instrumentality, an agency. And so God is not omnipersen. His person is not everywhere. He's in heaven, but his presence is everywhere. And it's understood in the way that Paul points out, at least in part in Acts 17 to those men of Athens. In verse 26, he says, He has made from one blood every nation of the men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grow up for him and find him. Notice, though he is not far from each one of us. And so God's omnipresent in the fact that everywhere we go, including the people we spend time with, there's a presence of God in that those things and those people originated with him. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1 and verse 1. Colossians gives further evidence to this in verse 16 of chapter 1. For by him, that is Christ, all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So if we see something that consists, then God's presence is there. Everywhere we go, we should be reminded of the existence of God. We should know that he is in all things. Proverbs 5.21 says that the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. And in chapter 15 of Proverbs in verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So his omnipresence is even manifested through his omniscience. He knows all things and so it's rightly said that he sees and is an eyewitness of all things. And just like with the omnipotence and omniscience of God, the omnipresence of God should directly lead to us living a certain way. It should give us the reason for being people of integrity, especially before God. Notice what Paul said in Philippians 1, 27, Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or in absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand with Fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for faith in the gospel. He revisits that in chapter 2 and verse 12 when he said, as we read earlier, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out that salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, we don't obey God just when we're around each other, but we obey God when we're with other people who aren't Christians, who, who aren't a member of our congregation, but even more so, we obey God when we are absolutely alone because all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. But that also gives us comfort. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, the apostle Paul noted a time where he was alone when it really came down to it. He said in verse 10 that Demas has forsaken me and departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia and Titus for Dalmatia. He said in verse 16 that at my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me that the message might be preached fully through me, that all the Gentiles might hear. 
Consider, though, that the Lord stood with Paul, the Lord was with Paul, the Lord was present with Paul as he's present everywhere else because Paul was submitting to the Lord. We cannot say that the Lord is with us if we are not submitting to the Lord. But it's also something of comfort when we consider what Jesus explained to the woman at the Samaritan, the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well when she asked about where the proper place of worship was. The Samaritans say over here at this mountain, Gerizim, but the Jews say over here at Mount Zion in Jerusalem. But he says the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. In other words, the place doesn't matter. Why? Because God is omnipresent with the people that are submitting to him. The same concept was noted by Stephen in his sermon in Acts chapter 7, that God does not dwell in temples made with men's hands. He's not confined by four walls. He's omnipresent. But we should also live with the understanding that while God is all present, that there's great glory and and blessings in that. So we should live in such a way that fears losing God's presence. Now, that obviously seems contradictory. God is omnipresent, all present everywhere at all times, but we can lose that. How can God not be in a place? Well, he's certainly going to be in a place that he created, but he's not going to be a place with his most intimate ways. That's why the punishment that we'll receive if we're not obedient to God is described as this in verse 9 of Second Thessalonians 1, that these who do not know God and do not obey the gospel will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of his glory. We need to understand that the most scary thing about hell is that God will not be there. In Matthew 25, in that judgment scene, Jesus said this in verse 41, He will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. The only presence of God in hell is the fact that hell was something prepared by God for the people who are disobedient to him. And that's not a presence you want. You want the presence of his eternal glory in heaven. There are other attributes of God, obviously, And many of the attributes of God in specificity fall under these three general categories of God's omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence. But we should certainly understand these three fundamental principles of God's existence. And we should cause them in our greatest understanding to cause us to live vastly different than how the rest of the world lives. We want to offer an invitation to those who have not obeyed the gospel this evening to do so before it's everlastingly too late. God has all the power in the world and the universe and existence to raise you up from your sin and make you a new creature in Christ. You just have to answer his call. You've got to submit to his infinite knowledge and then you'll have God's presence in the most intimate way. Don't squander that opportunity. If you have obeyed, but there's something spiritual that we can assist you with, that you're struggling with, and in any case, we invite you to come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.